16. <clears throat> As you're getting to Revelation 14, I do want to... Uh, I, I had as one of my questions in the workbook, and it was brought up last week as well, about uh, a connection to Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. Uh, and I think that's important. I, I mentioned that way, way on back in the, in, in the early in the early beginnings uh, about how Second uh, Thessalonians two you have the Apostle Paul uh, saying that you can't have the day of the Lord and this coming judgment until these two things happen, and, and it depends on your translation until. Uh, the revolt or rebellion or apostasy, pick your translation that's there in the first one. And then they all agree with this, this man of, of lawlessness. Um, and I want you to notice the description that's given about, about this man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So notice this kind of blasphemous words, exalts himself against anything and everything that's an object of worship and a so-called God, opposes the true and living God, proclaims himself to be God, takes his seat in a place where people will worship him. And then notice the, the rest of that description that begins in verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So here you are in the first century and the Apostle Paul's already describing this as already in existence. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So notice now. Verse 9 of Second Thessalonians 2, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So here's what I want you to hear is, does that not sound like Revelation 13? I mean, really, really similar language. And not only that, Remember, in Revelation 13, who is the one who is raising this beast up to persecute the people of God and cause everyone to worship it? And if you don't worship it, you're going to be persecuted and not be able to buy and sell in the marketplace? Satan. Satan. What does is, what is Paul say? The coming of the lawless one is the activity of Satan. And notice with wonders and false signs and deception and all of that. So I believe they're talking about the same thing. Uh, and that would make sense to verse 7. It's already here. It's already at work. It's already starting is what the Apostle Paul says. And that would, to me, would make sense of, of the whole of prophetic pictures about the first century. In the book of Daniel, when you read Daniel 2 or Daniel 7 or Daniel 9 or Daniel 11 and 12, you have prophecies about events that had to happen in the first century. The destruction of Jerusalem, you see that in chapter 7 and chapter 9 of Daniel. And you also see this fourth terrifying beast in Daniel 7 or Daniel 2, the fourth kingdom of the four in, the, in that statue. And you have in Daniel 9, that fourth beast is, has to ultimately be destroyed. Daniel 7 it says the same thing, the fourth beast is going to be destroyed. Now, to me, it makes a whole lot of sense <clears throat> for the Apostle Paul in Second Thessalonians to come along to those Christians and here they are thinking that the day of the Lord has already passed and oh no 
And Paul goes, well, I told you that there were two things that still had to happen before that could occur. This rebellion, which I think is pointing to the destruction of Jerusalem, and the revealing of this man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. That is already at work, but it's only going to get worse. That has to happen too, because those are prophecies in Daniel that have to be fulfilled. You can't have the end until these things come about. So to me, it makes a whole lot of sense why Paul would use these kinds of pictures. And to me, since we've just done Revelation 13, these visuals, I think, are very powerful because that's what we've just read about. We've talked about the Roman Empire and the pagan worship and the emperor worship and this imperial worship and all that is going on with paganism. And we read about what Pliny was saying to Trajan about the need for sacrifices and honoring the gods and doing the incense. And if they don't do that three times, they're going to be killed. Well, that's what Revelation 13 sounds like which is what this sounds like with this lawless one who's brought out by the activity of Satan and he's doing false signs and wonders and using wicked deception uh, to all those who are perishing. Now, here's the good news. Most people read like this section at the end of chapter 13 or uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 and think you have some uh, future antichrist Problem that's going to come based on this image. And I like to just show you and go, well, it already, it already happened. Uh, and you might use even 1 John, which talks in the same way and says not only are there, there's many antichrists. This has always been going on. It is always a battle of God's people uh, against the, the worldly nations that try to rise up against him and his people. And so here's one of, one of those pictures. So in, in your workbook, you have that question about 2 Thessalonians 2 in this section. I wanted to bring it in just to show you, I think we're seeing concordance here that what Paul is talking about is what John was talking about, is what Jesus was talking about, is what Daniel is talking about, Charlotte. <clears throat> Okay, I think he's as much of a singular man as Revelation 13 verse 18 says that this is the number of a man or a number of a human and his number is 666. Is you are talking about a human, but you're not talking about like, okay, one specific guy, but the category of these men who are standing against the will of God. And so that's why I think you can see Revelation 13 verse 18 fitting that idea very well. This is the call for wisdom. I'll get that cleared out in a minute. This is a, this is a call for wisdom. Don't worship this entity that claims itself to be God, sets itself above all other gods, demands worship, requires that, <clears throat> not there yet, requires that kind of, uh, of homage and worship and, and treatment. Don't fall for that. And that's going to play very big into chapter 14 uh, because we're going to look at Revelation 14 now and you're going to see that division occur about the people of God are not going to participate in this kind of emperor worship, government worship, um, pagan worship, uh, temple worship, all the things that are going on in that first century in the Roman Empire. This is pushing against that and saying the people of God are not going to participate in that. Okay, any questions about that? It's not a side point to 2 Thessalonians, but I just wanted you to see the descriptions in Revelation 13 are very parallel. 
and worthy of considering that we're talking about the same entity. Debbie? Yeah, I, Janet had a question last week, and we didn't get to it, but it was whether or not, whether or not there was an importance to one beast rising from the sea and the other coming from the earth. Right, and I think to me, and I, did I put that off? Probably did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's not that. It's just, you know... You get talking and everything's got to warm up. <laughs> I need to start talking more at breakfast, so I'm ready. Uh, uh, but I'm good. Thank you. Um, but I think it's just speaking to the the completeness of this kind of rule and authority and worship that's going on, one out of the land, one out of the sea. This is going to be global in terms of, of, of its problem, and that, that's why I think there's some consistency in, in, in that kind of picture. But it is a good question, but yeah, uh, sometimes I have to hold questions later, and then I completely forget that you asked it, and so please ask it again, because I'm not trying to be dismissive, I'm just clueless. Uh, so <laughs> just remind me, yes. Yeah, so well, that, that's, I was just hoping for people to be gone when they ask hard questions. That's what I was going for. <laughs> I just wait them out long enough till they go on vacation. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. no. Uh, any other questions through chapter 13 of Revelation or its connection to 2 Thessalonians 2? Uh, otherwise, we'll move forward in chapter 14. All right, so let's go to chapter 14 of Revelation. Let's read the first five verses. Revelation 14, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have, not been defi- who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits of God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. All right, let's talk about this group here in these first couple of verses. In verse 1, we see the 144,000, all right? Who are these people, and where have we seen them before? Let's talk about those aspects. Who are they? All right, what's that? God's people. God's people, okay. What tells you, what tells you that? Good, yeah, verse 1, right? They have, the, have his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. What's that in contrast to? Back in chapter 13, you might remember there where you saw that if you did not have the mark of the beast, chapter 13, verse 16 and 17, of the, on your forehead or on your hand, then you weren't allowed to, be, to buy and sell. We've seen this, this marking idea as who do you belong to? And again, not a literal, you're going to get stamped with something, not, you know, microtransmitters in the back of your neck or anything like that. It's just imagery. You either belong to God and you're marked and sealed with him, or you belong to the worldly beast and its paganism and worship and all that, and, and you do that. It's, it's one or the other. So you're getting a great contrast here and why you see that those who do not 
belong to uh, uh, this worldly nation, this this emperor worship and this pagan worship. They're the ones that are not going to to have this, this mark mark on them, and that's what verses fifteen and and sixteen of chapter thirteen are are getting at. Uh, in trying to observe that. So you notice that's the picture of chapter 14 and verse 1. Here is our 144,000. Now, where have we seen them before? They're the ones in chapter 7. And how did we get to 144,000 in chapter 7? 12,000 from each tribe, right? So 12,000 from this tribe, and there's 12 tribes. And if I do some math, 12 times 12,000 is 144,000. And we said that ultimately was symbolizing all of God's people. These are big numbers to say all of God's people are sealed. Remember, the next thing you see in chapter 7 is this great multitude, and they are pictured in heaven around the throne. Uh, Here in the first couple of verses, where are the 144,000? They're around the throne. We haven't moved them. We still have our same group. We saw them in chapter 7. They're still here in chapter 14. There's still the great multitude, still the complete number of the servants of God. None of them are being left out of this heavenly reward that is being depicted. Looking at verses 4 and 5, what are some of the descriptions that are given about who these people are? Because there's a little bit extra given about them. Okay, I think that's a good way to describe it, is they're described as blameless and undefiled. They're pure. I think a great line that you have there to help give a sense of it is they follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's that's a great image of of it, especially when you think about uh, when Jesus, where did he ultimately end up going? To the cross and then exalted into heaven. All right, and we've talked about how are these people around the throne? Well, because they've sacrificed their lives and have followed the lamb wherever he goes. And so you're seeing that kind of depiction. Now, one of the things that gets particularly troubling to people is reading verse 14. I mean, not verse 14, verse 4 of chapter 14, where it says that they are virgins. And everybody goes, so is this some kind of, you know, problem that... You know, single people who are virgins are more holy and they're not defiled and people who are married, they are defiled. What's what's going what's going on here? And you will catch this from time to time, particularly in scriptures where the idea of being a virgin is used as a, a symbol for being pure to serve God. Here's why this can't be a decrying against marriage who who invented marriage who commanded marriage so he can't be then reversing on himself and going and now if you're married you're completely undefiled and you can't follow the lamb wherever he goes that doesn't make any any sense at all uh without marriage there's no continuing of the human race so uh that can't be the be the idea so but here are some passages where you see that idea maybe one of them that's the most interesting uh, of the list there is in Second Samuel with David. You might remember when he's on the run with his men and he ends up uh, at Nob and, the, and they're asking about food and the, the priest there says, well, we don't have any food except this leftover table of showbread and that's supposed to be only used in, in holy means. And you might remember one of the answers that David gives is we have remained undefiled from women. And you read them and go, 
What are you getting at? Well, it's trying to say we are devoting ourselves to service to God. We're prepared and we are completely dedicated to him. So you see the same thing with um, <clears throat> with uh, the whole scene with Bathsheba and David. You might remember when he calls for Uriah to come home as he's trying to cover up his plan. What is he hoping Uriah is going to do? Go and be with his wife. Uriah doesn't do it. Why? Same idea. I'm out here doing God's work. I'm not going to do that because there's this idea of singular devotion uh, to God that's being depicted here. So it's not a critique of, of, of single people versus married people, but just trying to underscore uh, this purity and blameless and singular devotion to God. They were willing to give their lives uh, even even to the death. Evan, you have at the end, if, if, you, if you're understanding them also, you have to understand that you will never imply that you always have been blameless. Good. Right, which is impossible, right? Uh, and in fact, that's one of the things that I think uh, some people can, can miss and I think is useful to point out here is that this group can't be a literal description of a literal number because... It is saying things that would be impossible for for humans to do. For example, they are blameless and there is no lie found in their mouth. All right, let's just take a poll. Don't raise your hand. (laughs) How many of you have never said any kind of untruth lie whatsoever? Yeah, good luck. It's going to be an empty place in heaven if that's what we're looking for is totally have never said anything of any kind of deception or shadiness or turning any no uh, and i always like to point out as well as to take the 144,000 as a as a literal actual number then verse 4 would indicate then that it is only men right it says it says there in verse 4 they have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins so you would have to have Male Jewish men who have never been with a woman, who have never lied and are completely blameless and followed the lamb wherever he went. So big reminder of what we talked about way on back when we started this study in those first three verses of chapter one. These are symbols. They're all representing pictures. You can't come in here and start making things literal in the book as an actuality. The symbol is pointing to something that is actual, but the symbol itself cannot be actual. And what is ironic to me is that those who really press a literal interpretation of the scriptures, you know, it's a literal thousand years. It's literal that some of the things that we've seen won't do that here because you can't and it's not fair to come to the book of revelation and pick and choose when you want it to be literal and when you don't now i don't want 144,000, but i do want the 1000 or i do want the 10 days or i do want the three and a half years or the 42 months or the time times you don't get to pick and choose it's got to either be symbols or be consistent and Take all the numbers as literal numbers and here's your 144,000 that are the only ones that are in heaven around the throne that are male Jewish virgins who have never lied. You know, it, it doesn't work. So 
this is a great spot to remind us of that idea that these are symbols and this is trying to picture that symbol. These are the undefiled people of God in their totality. Even though this is going on in chapter 13 in regards to this persecution, chapter 14 reminds us they are protected by God. All right. Questions so far before we keep pushing on. All right. Um, Here's something that's a little bit tough. You'll notice in verse four, after giving that description, it says, it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits. All right. So tell me what it means in scriptures when you have first fruits, and then we can try to apply how these people are described as first fruits that have been for God and for the Lamb. All right. How about the easier part? In scriptures, you had first fruits going on. What was happening when God commanded that, Julie? So in, in, under the law of Moses, you had a requirement that uh, when your harvest began to come in, there was a first fruits. Those first fruits were offered up and given to God. And the whole idea is it's like a, a early giving of what the rest of the harvest was going to be. So the beginning of it is given to God with the presumption here is all of this rest that God is going to give. And so they would enjoy the rest of the harvest themselves, giving the, the beginning of that harvest to God as, as an offering. So in putting it in terms here, I want you to think about, so where does it say these people are? Okay, they're, so we, we've observed many times with them, they've already died for the cause of Christ. And if you remember, this connects up with Revelation chapter 6, where we saw with the fifth seal that you have people who are under the altar, the servants of God, crying out, how long? Here they've died for the cause of Christ, asking how long until judgment's going to happen? How long until there's going to be uh, your, your act against what they've done? And the answer was until the rest of your servants were killed. Notice the same idea here. Here's the 144,000. They've already died for the cause of Christ. They're pictured as risen and around the throne. And notice that the image is not, and, and there's no more bad things that are going to happen. The image is, they're a first fruits, which means there's many more to come, right? You're the beginning. That's just like the harvesting idea. Here's the beginning of the rest that's supposed to come. Well, here's the beginning of the rest that's to come. And it's setting up these chapters that are going to describe this persecution against the people of God. And so here's this first fruits image. They've died. They have followed the lamb wherever he goes. And that has meant that they would give their lives because they're not going to worship the beast and worship his image. And that's going to cause them trouble. 
And that's going to be true for the rest of the Christians as well. So it's giving us that that picture. And that's what we'll see in verses 6 through 8 is it carries that idea on. Uh, Charlotte. Yep. Well, remember, this was then symbolic to describe all of the servants of God. If you before you get to the numbering, remember, it's in verse two or verse three of chapter seven. It will say that before these winds could cover the earth, we need to seal the servants of God. And then it goes, okay, well, who are the servants of God? Well, then it does the numbering to indicate who's the true Israel, who's the full number of the people of God. It includes Jews and Gentiles. It's it's everyone. And you're seeing the same idea here. Who are the servants? They're undefiled. They're blameless. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They're pure. It's it's that same image being being depicted here, uh, Debbie. Christians have been described earlier throughout the New Testament as being true Israel. Yeah, that's right. And that's that's used many many times. And it's it's fitting after chapter eleven where we saw uh, the. Uh, holy city being destroyed and yet the people of God are considered as spared and being the true temple that is measured and it is not part of that destruction that the book has carried out that distinguishing between who's truly the people of God versus who are just kind of playing at it physically um, Clayton And I hope we can get a sense of how important that visual is, uh, especially sitting in the first century. If you're thinking about uh, here is this message that we're we're going to die for uh, serving God. We're going to die if we don't uh, worship the image and participate in this imperial pagan worship. I passed those papers out to you last week where you got to read about even at the end of the first century, what that was looking like, where Christians are being put on trial to see if they're going to confess Christ or if they're going to renounce their faith. So you're seeing those pictures. And just imagine that you have to you want to encourage and communicate to Christians, even if you are physically killed, that's OK. You are pictured as with God. If the worst that can happen to you is you lose your physical life and now get to have eternity with God, that ain't bad. <laughs> that's, that's okay. And, and trying to communicate the importance of that. You have something beyond this life. If you are killed for his sake, it's not the end. It's, it's not over for you. It's now the beginning of everything. And that's what they're showing here in this visual. You can imagine these Christians who are suffering and being persecuted. Well, what has happened to the first fruits? What happened to the prior Christians who have died for the cause of Christ? Oh, they're in heaven and they're around the throne and they're singing a new song of victory. 
Well, all right. <laughs> you haven't missed out. You haven't been, even though judged by the world as, as worthless, you are judged by God as faithful. And so those are kind of ideas that we probably take for granted, especially if you grew up in the pews and you're used to hearing that of, you know, resurrection and new life and we're going to be with him. But it's because of Christ those concepts are true. And so the first century has to be a lot of saying it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Christ rose from the dead. He led the way. He's the trailblazer. You're joined with him. He died. He raised. You die. You raise. It's okay. You know, and that's what these visuals are, are doing. Valerie? So back in chapter, chapter verse 4, it's important to remember that they are already in heaven. Yep. Right? Yep. They've died for the cause of Christ. Sure. Which would, so this wouldn't make sense either, right? To try to literally impose these these images. Yeah. It, when, when you catch all of verse four, you're really getting. They are following the Lamb, and they're undefiled. They have fully given their lives to Christ. To use Jesus' words, they have taken up the cross and followed Him. Uh, that's who these these people are. So I think that's a great point as well, Valerie. All right. Uh, look at verse six now. Verse six, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth and to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and springs of water. And another angel said, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of of the passion of her sexual immorality. All right, let's talk about these these, uh, three angels. First two on the scene that we've read. What's the message in verses 6 and 7? What's the proclamation? Okay. It's proclaiming the gospel. And what did the gospel sound like as it's proclaimed from this, this angel? What does the angel say? Fear God. Why? Judgment's coming. And, okay, do you see how that's the gospel? We sometimes have a lopsided gospel, right? What makes the good news good news is that the judgment of God can be avoided, right? And sometimes we think, well, good news is only that positive angle, but remember, the reason you need salvation is you are being saved from something. There must be something bad that requires good news. There must be something going on that requires salvation. So the gospel is being proclaimed. Fear God and give him glory, And it's going to go well for you because judgment's coming. There is the wrath of God that's about to fall. And so that's what those verses 6 and 7, these first two verses of this section are are describing uh, in in that picture. Also notice the end of of verse 7. What's the description about, about God and why is that important? Worship him who made heaven, earth, sea, and all those springs of water. Why Why say that? All right, so yeah, again, these are words of encouragement. God's still in charge here. Even though Satan's raised in this beast out and his goal is to persecute the people of God and all of this trouble is rising up and 
about buying and selling and all of that is going on, if you don't have the mark of the beast, you get this picture of, but don't forget, you still have God on the throne. God is ruling and you need to worship him. He's ruling over all of that. Notice verse eight, another proclamation is made. What's the proclamation? Fallen is Babylon. She who made all nations drink the wine of her passion of sexual morality. All right. So is Babylon in existence in the first century? No. So again, we're in still symbols. That's what we're doing the whole book is that these are all symbols. All right. First of all, let's talk about why is is judgment being given against Babylon? And then maybe we'll figure out who Babylon is. What's Babylon done according to verse 8? All right, so again, the statement basically you're causing people to sin, and based on chapter thirteen, how is it causing the world to sin? Yeah, and okay, that, that, and that's the symbol. Yeah. Don't worship God. Worship our gods. Don't worship Jesus as king. Worship the emperor, son of God. Don't. Follow your God. Remember, remember Christians we read, they're, they're called atheists. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? <laughs> they're called atheists because they don't believe in all the gods. <laughs> they have this one and that's it. So they're like, you guys are a bunch of atheists. It, it, don't, don't worship that. Worship all of our pantheon of gods and, 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 and give them incense and, and worship and, and sacrifices and your offerings. So that's, that's, I think, the idea here is you have this world empire, this Roman empire in the first century that is telling everybody you can't worship Christ. In fact, as we read last week, and if you do, you're going to be killed, right? So here is this, this picture of making the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual morality. All right, so let me ask this question. Here you are in the first century. Who would be the natural symbol of Babylon, a world empire causing the nations to sin? I mean, I, I think that's straightforward. And if you were kind of curious about that, you might remember how Peter ends his letter in First Peter chapter 5 and verse 13. And he says this really interesting ending and he says, she who is in Babylon greets you. Yeah, read that, go Babylon. Babylon's been gone for a long, long time. It's 600 years gone at this point. What do you mean Babylon? What's going on with that? It's a symbol. The world city, the world empire at the time. uh, Roman empire at that time. I want you to notice something else that's a little bit curious. Notice the tense of the proclamation in verse 8. Fallen. Notice the proclamation is not Babylon, Babylon's going to fall, which is interesting because we just said it's the Roman Empire, and yet the Roman Empire still exists. It's still the power. That's what Revelation is talking about here. Why say it in past tense? Yeah, that happens a lot in scriptures. If you go back and read the prophets, they do that kind of thing all the time. They will state the end before the beginnings even started. Uh, and a great example of that is where this is quoted from. In Isaiah 21, you have Isaiah saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Now, here's what's really interesting when Isaiah says it. Babylon wasn't the world empire yet. 
Assyria was. And he's already saying Babylon's going to come along and it's going to fall too. And here you are way before that <laughs> even happening. Babylon doesn't become the world empire until 612 BC after it destroys Nineveh and deals with Assyria and wipes it out. But Isaiah prophesies in the 700s. He's a hundred years beforehand. And he's going, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And we can sit on the other side and go, oh yeah, that worked out great. You know, that, it's true. It, prophetic certainty, it's going to happen without a doubt. I think so. I think it's a great contrast. So in verse four, you have the people of God are described as being virgins undefiled. You'll notice the people of the world in verse eight are described as committing sexual immorality, right? So here's this symbolic contrast. Faithful to God, they're undefiled. Faithful to the world, faithful to their passions, desires, faithful to idolatry is described as sexual immorality because you are breaking covenant with, with the true and living God. Evan? I was just thinking with the, putting the realm in that tense, it's a reminder to them that the call to them is not to resist Rome in a physical way. That's right. They're not going to become saboteurs. Right. take on the empire. Right. As a, as a person of faith, you know what has already come to pass. That's right. Whatever it does, doesn't really matter. That's right. And so I think that's, the, that's part of the reason for using that past. Absolutely. And, and what encouragement that would be as a reminder that God sees the end and the beginning. And he's already telling you the end. This nation isn't going to last either. So exactly right. Don't worship it. Don't follow it. Don't resist it. Just be faithful to Christ and, and, and hold on to that. And I think that's one of the great encouragements that would, that would be here uh, in, in that. And that's where, where the rest of this paragraph goes. Uh, you'll notice in verse 9, another angel, a third, followed saying, If anyone worships the beast and receives the mark on his forehead or his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of, of the name. So notice how this is all connecting together now is that so God's wrath is on those who worship the beast and worship the image. So chapters 13 and 14 are tied closely together because chapter 13 described going about persecuting people who will not worship the beast in its image. Those who will not participate in the pagan worship, the idolatrous worship, the emperor worship. They're going to be persecuted. They're not going to be allowed to buy and sell. That's what chapter 13 verses 16 and 17 are talking about. So now here is this picture to the other side. And saying there in verse 9 that anyone who does have this mark, who does worship the beast, who does participate in that, what's going to happen? Torment. Judgment, torment. God's wrath is poured out. That's what verse 10 says. We drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength. Uh, and you notice you have tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of his angels and smoke goes up forever and ever. These are common images of this is eternal punishment. So are you going to save your physical life 
by worshiping the image and taking the mark, and now you can buy and sell and save your life, but lose your soul? Or are you going to lose your physical life because you're not going to take the mark and you're not going to worship the emperor and you're not going to worship those idols, but you will avoid the wrath of God? That's what these two chapters are are walking through is you have a tough choice. Which that's why back in chapter 13 and verse, verse 10, it ended with, this is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Chapter 14, verse 12, this is a call for the endurance and faith of the, of the saints. It's like, this is going to be hard. And I hope you can try to just visualize what that would have been like. We are so fortunate to be nowhere near anything like that. We think, oh, it's so hard to be a Christian. We're, we're, we're skating here versus what Christians had to deal with in those first couple of centuries. It was a decision. Do you want to be part of the culture and part of society and part of being able to buy and sell and participate in all the normal events and affairs of the world? But then lose your soul because you're worshiping the government and the, and the emperor and the, and the foreign gods and all of that. Or will you be willing to lay down your life, if called upon, and not participate in those things? This is a call, verse 12, for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Let me pull in one more, then I'll, I'll grab you, Julie. Verse, verse 13. If, in case the readers didn't catch what they were being asked to do. Verse 13, a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. To just understand this is what was being told to them. I understand you are going to die by not worshiping the beast, by not participating in all that was going on in that society. And the call is, you're blessed. And that's why chapter 14 opened with, where are the people of God? Around the throne. Julie? I mean, it's hard for me to even say what I want to say, but like, you know, we are told to The destruction of the body. Yeah. But to fear God. You know, the call for the endurance of the saints, we don't understand that because we're not being persecuted. Now, those of us who are in the school system, and it's not, a, it's not a funny thing, it's a reality, we might be getting closer to what you're talking about. I mean, it's, it's scary. It's very scary. The world is getting very scary. Um, but it, it's just a very hard thing to do when we live in the world we live in. Yep. You know, to really understand what that means, the endurance of the saints, you know. It's so easy to fall into the world, the lust of the world, the yeah. life and all of that, and forget that the, the God, the judge, is standing at the door. That's right. We have no idea when this is going to end. And um, it is a call for the endurance of the saints, but again, there's just so much. It's just it's, it's a yeah. scary thing. It's a hopeful thing. And I think we think we're blessed by living in this, in this country and the way we live. Yeah. But 
it really it can be a real curse as well it, to, it, not be, to not be persecuted sure and, and I think that's probably one of the works of Satan is to make us so extremely prosperous and comfortable that we forget God um yeah, it's a, it's a double-edged sword because on one level we look around and we can go, yeah, there's already resistance to God that's pushing more and more and continue against the darkness. And then you also read a passage like this and go, yeah, and it could get so much worse and we're nowhere near that. I mean, we're, we're just not even close to what this world looked like, as bad as we might have to deal with certain things. It's still relatively small, you might lose your job. You might be canceled. Social interaction against you. You're now never allowed on Facebook again. I mean, uh, you know, whatever. Those are some of the things that that we're in right now, and that's new. And we're like, but it's not this. And I would just say, have a mind that if if the Lord told these people to stay faithful in the teeth of this, then we have to stay faithful in our own day and age, whatever our difficulty looks like. And that won't be easy. But it is what verse 12 says. It is a call for endurance. It is a call for us to stand firm. And we will not worship the beast or its image, but we will stay faithful to what the word of God says and follow the lamb wherever he goes. Because we would rather be around the throne than experience the wrath of God poured out full strength. So that's the picture. Evan, then we'll stop. I'm not sure I know how to articulate this really well, but I think part of what he's saying to them and that Babylon is gone is don't fool yourself into thinking you can modify it, fix it, use it as your own tool for whatever. It's irredeemable and gone. That's right. Sometimes that's the other way people have gone. That's right. Assume, well, we'll get the reins of power. That's right. We'll fix we this. We can make it what should be. Right. And it's never going to work. No. God has set this plan the way He sets it. It's settled. That's right. Keep that in mind. Yes. Because otherwise, you become corrupted. And right. You become part of the problem. You become part of worshiping the beast. And I would say as well, why would you align yourself if God is saying fallen is fallen? Then why align yourself? with what you know is ultimately temporary. No world power or nation ever endures. It always eventually goes. Now, every nation thought it would always stand. (laughs) We have plenty of history to know that's not true. (laughs) So don't buy in and go, oh, but we're so different. No, we're not. (laughs) Come on. We've only been around a couple hundred years. We're a blip right now. We're, We're nothing. 15-minute break. We'll reconvene at 10.30 for our next hour. We'll pick up here for next week in our, in our Bible class, but we're out of time. So 15-minute break. We'll reconvene. Thank you.